Hello, and welcome to On the Right Track podcast. On the Right Track is a podcast by two South Asian debut authors, Emily Varga and Sara M. Rana, that addresses the little known secrets of publishing, marketing, and behind the scenes of traditional publishing. We interview guests who are in different stages, jobs, or careers in the traditional publishing industry in order to provide our listeners with an insider's look. We are so excited, you guys, to welcome Fonda Lee on our podcast today. First, let me introduce the fabulous Fonda Lee. Fonda Lee is the author of the epic fantasy, The Greenbone Saga, beginning with Jade City. If you have not read it, it is sublime, continuing in Jade War and concluding in Jade Legacy. She is also the author of the science fiction novels Zero Boxer, Exo, and Crossfire, and two novellas, The Greenbone Saga prequel, The Jade Setter of Jan Loon, and the upcoming Untethered Sky. Fonda is a winner of the World Fantasy Award, the Locus Award, and four-time winner of the Aurora Award, as well as multiple finalists for the Hugo Award, the Nebula, the Oregon Book Award, and her novels have garnered multiple starred reviews, and Jade City has been translated in a dozen languages, named to Time Magazine's top 100 fantasy books of all time, and optioned for television development. Fonda is a corporate strategist and black belt martial artist who loves action movies and eggs Benedict. Born and raised in Canada, she currently resides in the Pacific Northwest. And if that does not convince you to worship her, I don't know what will. Welcome, Fonda. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Sarah, for having me on the show. So Fonda, we start off with a question of all our guests. Could you give us a quick rundown about your journey in the publishing industry and maybe some details about your YA books coming out and how your um, adult books were published? Sure. So writing for me is my second career. I've always wanted to be a writer. I remember when I was 10 years old telling my parents I wanted to be a writer and they were like, that's lovely, but you have to go to college and get a degree and get a good job. So that's what I did. And I had a whole decade long career uh, in business and finance. And at some point, caught the writing bug again and realized that what had always been a hobby for me was something I wanted to take a lot more seriously. And I was also at this inflection point in my life where I was super busy. I had a day job. I had two small children. And I was sort of reevaluating what I wanted to do with my life. And this pipe dream of writing a book just became really front and center for me. So I uh, took a step back from my corporate career and really dedicated myself to writing for publication. I wrote sort of a practice novel, and then I wrote a fantasy YA novel that I sent out um, on submission to agents. It didn't get picked up anywhere. And then I wrote another novel, which became my debut. And that was Zero Boxer. It was a young adult science fiction novel. And it came out from a mid-sized press uh, called Flux. And then I followed that up with two additional young adult science fiction novels, Exo and Crossfire, which were a duology that came out from Scholastic. And while I was on contract for those, I started writing um, my first adult fantasy 
series, uh, which would become the Greenbone Saga. I wrote Jade City and uh, we took it out on submission. It landed at Orbit and finished off in, in 2021. It also has a novella and short story collection. And I've got another, another novella coming out. So it started out being the, okay, let's see if I can get a novel published. And now um, I have an actual career, which is a wonderful feeling. So it feels like it's taken a long time. And it, al- it also feels like it's been a bit of a whirlwind. I just want to jump in and say, first, we are all huge fans of the Greenbone Saga. I think that's the book. It's the series I read when I was in my mentorship that actually I studied and like read like front to back like multiple times because I also do martial arts and it was the book that I was like wow we're actually allowed to use martial arts in writing I was so inspired by it but what I didn't know until I found out later when I like stalked you online was that you also wrote YA how was the transition from writing YA sci-fi to like full-on adult fantasy right this is always a really interesting question for me to answer because I never really saw the transition as a transition because I was working on the Greenbone Saga at the time that I was also writing my young adult novels. It's just the Greenbone Saga is a lot larger and took a longer time to finish and to get published. So by the time it came out, it, the way that the schedule worked out, it seemed like I had done these YA novels and then I had taken this shift and and done adult novels was in my mind I had always intended to write both and zero boxer in particular was this interesting case of falling sort of in between YA and adult and when I went on submission with it I had a young adult editor saying oh it feels kind of mature and a lot of uh, adult publishers saying oh it feels kind of YA um, so I think naturally I I have in it in me to write on both sides of that fence. But in terms of kind of the publishing experience between them, there is definitely a place that your book has to go on a shelf in a bookstore or in a library. And in some ways, the YA adult distinction is somewhat arbitrary because it really does come down to how who is it marketed to? Who is this book for? Is it for primarily a teen audience, even though adults might enjoy it? Or is it for primarily an adult audience, even though some more mature teens would enjoy it? So that decision has to be made. Ideally, you make that decision as the author, and that informs your strategy as to what agents you go after, um, what editors you submit to, and so on. It's interesting these days because there is a lot of crossover and because young adult has grown to be such a large category, that area is very porous. You see quite a few authors move across it and even some adult books that you would say feel like they could be YA and some YA books that you would say feel like they could be adult. But there is a difference in terms of really intent. Who do you want to read the book? Who's the book? Four. And I think that comes down from a craft perspective to voice. Is this a story that is fundamentally rooted in the perspective of an adolescent? Or is it from the perspective, the worldview of an adult? And that's not as simple as just aging up characters. You could have a teenage um, protagonist, but the story is written with the tone and the intent of an adult point of view. And that's... that's fine distinction, but it's one that that is very important. Yeah, it's so interesting to me because it is, it's a discussion that we have with a lot of young adult authors, especially young adult fantasy and sci-fi authors, because I think that kind of like 
there's usually a marked kind of separation with with the contemporary you can see with the high school and like or university but with a lot of YA f- fantasy authors um, or adult fantasy authors, it seems like a lot of female authors are being told, especially female adult fantasy authors are being told, mm, I think this is YA because we've had a few friends now go on submission with their agents with an adult fantasy and get told by so many editors this is YA, it should be YA. And they have to kind of revise the book and then they sell the book as a YA when the whole time they really wanted their book to be an adult fantasy. It's an interesting discussion for me because is this a box that a lot of women fantasy writers are being put into? I mean, I don't know the answer to that, but it seems like a suspicious uh, thing that a lot of women writers who write adult fantasy are being told. Have you found that with any of your experience as a woman writer of fantasy? It's absolutely a thing. Uh, I've experienced it just about every single fantasy author that I know of has experienced it. Um, and it's infuriating at times, honestly, uh, because there is this, these barriers that are being put up in terms of what people perceive female writers as writing and, and the sort of juvenile, juvenileization, that's not even a word. But I, I'm, what I'm trying to say is there is this perception, I think, that women write for kids, that unfortunately is something that is operating on on some subconscious systematic level in our market. And what's interesting, I think, about this happening particularly in fantasy is that there's a very long tradition in fantasy, and in epic fantasy in particular, of the male coming-of-age story, of the farm boy who goes away on the quest and comes of age and fights evil and defeats the doctor, etc. There is a lot of that in fantasy, and it has always been considered part of the fantasy canon, the genre. Now, if you put a female character in that exact same coming-of-age story, it gets perceived as being a YA novel. And I think that is because... Honestly, the YA category is where a lot of those more female-centric coming-of-age stories first found voice. And this is actually a credit to the YA category, that that was where some of these stories became um, recognized and became very popular and became very mainstream. But unfortunately, what's happened is that you know fantasy has this tradition of, oh, well, these are male coming-of-age stories, and YA is, these are female coming-of-age stories. And it's limiting both female authors, and honestly, it's making it difficult for the right book to land with the right reader. When I've seen my books get mistakenly shelved in YA plenty of times, uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. Which is ridiculous, by the way. Yeah, the only thing that you can do when you see those Instagram posts or, you know, the lists that... And I, honestly, I think that it's not necessarily coming from a place of malice. It may also just be coming from just ignorance. Someone is making these lists. They haven't read all the books and they're making, you know, this snap judgment. Um, and unfortunately, the books are being miscategorized. And I'm so glad you said that it was kind of a credit to YA and that, you know, that's where these kind of stories kind of found their voice. Um, because along with that, 
there is that idea in maybe mainstream reader conscience that like YA is a step down, right? Like even though they have their place, they're still wonderful stories. And what I'm trying to say is that like when people say fantasy, an adult fantasy book, they think a dude, right? They think a dude wrote it. Like that's the neutral, that's the standard. And so the standard is up here, but then we've got like YA and like the women writers like down here, even though and across every category, female readers are the ones buying books by huge numbers over, over men. So I think it's just an interesting way that we set up this dichotomy between adult and YA in who's writing it, but also in who's reading it as well. I think it's further complicated by the fact that a lot of conventions that really yes. uh, took hold in the YA category have trickled up and influenced adult fiction as well. So absolutely, um, YA pacing um, and sort of the immediacy, um, greater use of uh, first person present tense, like some of the conventions that we're very familiar with as being prevalent in the YA category are not unique to the YA category, but are now, I think, being used to a greater extent in adult fiction because a lot of authors, frankly, who are writing now grew up reading YA in a way that their predecessors did not. So um, they're bringing some of those conventions into adult fiction. And that's perhaps muddying the waters even more for people. Absolutely. What about publisher support? Um, I'm just curious about what kinds of marketing support that you received from Orbit. There are uh, differences between marketing YA and adult fiction um, for certain. I'm not sure that there one is easier or harder than the other. They are different. But I think that publishing, it's a struggle either side of the fence um, because the reality is that there are so many books that are put out every single year and there's only bandwidth for a publisher to promote a few of them very heavily. And that's a choice on their part that they you know, they choose which lead titles they're going to put their effort behind. And it puts a large amount of the onus for marketing on the author if you're not one of those lead titles. But speaking specifically to the difference between YA and adult, with YA, you're speaking more to influencers and to uh, gatekeepers than you are directly to teens, especially younger teens who you know, they don't have an Amazon account yet. They don't necessarily have a lot of disposable income. So you really do need to get to librarians, to teachers, to booksellers. Book fairs. Exactly, yeah. So your your publisher's efforts ideally are focused there. I was fortunate because I was published by Scholastic. And so my books were in the Scholastic Book Fair. And that was a big career checkbox for me for my books to be in the Scholastic Book Fair, those flyers that I used to have when I was a kid that I would like circle all the books I wanted my parents to buy me. Um, And that moved copies for me like nothing else did um, in the YA space. And in comparison, in my adult fiction, I can reach those readers directly, but also it feels like the window to do so is narrower. There's more of a long tail with with young adult and, and kid lit fiction, where your book might stay on the shelf for a longer amount of time. It can be, you know, on state reading lists. It can be up for school reading programs and class sets and so on. So it feels like you have more time. While as an adult fiction, it feels like 
books are being published and they, you've got maybe three months in Barnes and Noble to establish a sales record. And then, you know, you're out of there. So you can re- talk to your reader more directly, but I noticed the tactics of my publishers were very different. Scholastic, they didn't do ads. They didn't do, you know, discounts. It was very much about getting into the schools and speaking to the teachers and librarians. You know, they had me speak at librarian association events and things like that. While as like with Orbit, my adult publisher, they relied much more heavily on Kindle daily deals, on price discounts, on social media. Um, so those things you, it just speaks to a, a difference in tactics because of sort of the nature of those two categories. It's interesting that you say that because I would have assumed that teenagers are much more easily accessed through social media. But now I'm like, wait, they don't have that disposable income that like we do where I can just go on Kindle, find cheap books and be able to buy them. Yeah. And I think teenagers, they are online. They are savvy for sure. I mean, you see, you know, teens on TikTok all the time. But also, I think it will depend quite a bit on your particular publisher and what their tactics are. Scholastic strength was its distribution network. So that's what they leaned into most heavily. I think there's other houses that have much more of their strategy based on social media or on what have you. Um, So you will find, I think, that your house determines a lot of what marketing you get. We've heard a lot about distribution here. A lot of our guests kind of said that they came into it being like, okay, what is your distribution when they were looking at, you know, what publishers were giving them offers and stuff like that? Is that something that you and your agent asked about before moving forward with an offer? Honestly, no. And the reason was because the vast majority of debut authors, myself included, didn't have like a whole bunch of choices to pick from. We were like, yes, we got a book deal. Let's go with it. (laughs) So you don't always get that the luxury, I mean, I, I suppose if you're lucky enough to have a six house auction, then those <laughs> should, should definitely be something that you and your agent discuss. I wish. Yeah. Yeah. Most of us are not in that boat. Most of us, um, you know, are, are fortunate to find an editor that we click with who wants to bring the book to the market and we go from there. But absolutely, I think that uh, you do Um, have to consider, can this publisher reach your readers? You know, that does have to be a consideration that you and your agent discuss. And sometimes the answer is no. I've seen um, many authors take deals with small presses. And small presses vary widely in terms of how good their distribution network is. And you could have a small press that has a great distribution network because they have partnerships with larger distributors. They have a a solid sales force, even if they are small, that has the right contacts. But you also have small publishers that don't have that network. And it's going to be hard for your book to get into bookstores and into libraries um, and, and places where it'll find readers. So distribution is absolutely key. And I think if you are one of the authors who gets a offer from one of the major publishers, their distribution is all going to be fine. They're all going to be able to get you into Barnes & Noble. Whether Barnes & Noble buys you in any volume is another question, but they all have the ability to get you to the, into the right places. Segwaying from distribution, I actually saw that you have a Patreon. Uh, I think you launched it sometime in COVID, and I thought that was awesome What made you go into launching a Patreon? And why do you think it's important for authors to start looking at those kinds of support networks, especially in this day and age? I never intended to do a Patreon. I have to be honest. I was one of those authors who was like, this looks like a lot of work. I don't want to sign up for another work stream, monthly commitment. 
I don't know who's even going to sign up for this. Um, and so I put it off for a long time. I saw a bunch of other authors doing it, but I was like, eh, just not, not my thing. And then I was in, uh, like you said, in COVID, it was 2021. And I was about to launch Jade Legacy, which was the third book of the Greenbone Saga and cap off the whole trilogy. And I realized I just didn't really want to leave the world yet. So I wrote a bunch of short fiction. I was basically writing like fan fiction for my own novels. And for my own enjoyment, I was writing this extra content. I had these extra short stories. I had a bunch of just sort of fun world building things that I was doing. I mean, because it was the pandemic and I didn't really want to admit that like the books were over. I want to move on to my next thing. So I was doing things like writing the travel guide to John Loon. All the power to you. And I just wanted to share it and thought, well, surely there's a way for me to make some use out of this. So it's not just like purely for my own kicks and giggles. So that's when I thought, okay, I'll, I'll put it out on a Patreon and I'll do this for kind of one year. And then I'll treat this Patreon, not really as like an income generating thing, but just as a way for me to connect with readers who want more. So that's what I did. Um, and I said, I'm just going to run it for one year and every month I'll put out a short story or something related to the Greenbone Saga world. Uh, and it, it was quite a bit of work. I'll be honest for anyone who's listening right now, who's considering doing it. It is an additional stream of work. I did monthly Q and A's and, you know, I had to sort of schedule putting out content at a certain amount of time, but the upside of it was that it was sort of a, it was a way for me to connect with readers. It was a way for me to give something to readers that's, that didn't involve kind of the long timeframes of publication process. And then these short stories that I ended up writing for Patreon, Subterranean Press, who's a specialty publisher, they do limited edition hardbacks. They uh, said, we know you've put these out on Patreon. Would you be interested in just collecting them together and putting them out as a short story collection? That's so dope. I love that. I was like, sure, of course, I've already written them. You want to publish them now? Great. So I'm, I'm glad I did it. And, and I think that one of the things that that is great about Patreon is that it it does provide sort of a little bit of additional stability for authors who um, have the bandwidth to put out that extra content. And we all know publishing incomes go up and down and fluctuate a great deal. And so it's it's just sort of one additional diversification stream. I like that you mentioned both that you weren't within the constraints of like traditional pub timelines, but you had all these readers that's, that, you know, wanted your stuff and you could kind of control that timeline and put it out monthly if you wanted to. And I also liked how you kind of mentioned the idea of having these multiple income streams as an author. I mean, it's not a business to go into if you're risk averse, right? Because you don't right. know where your next paycheck is, is going to come from, really, if you're wanting to be full time. And um, so having those different income streams seems awesome. You see lots of authors doing workshops now and like, you know, craft workshops and the retreats and, and different things that kind of like add those different income streams. And I love the idea of, of the Patreon and, and what you did with it, because I think it gives the choice back to a lot of traditionally published authors to kind of have that different income stream. Did you think about that when you were setting up your Patreon, that like it would be something that would be, you know, a different form of stability for you? Do you have advice for other authors? Yeah, I honestly didn't think of my Patreon as a significant income stream. Like I said, Mm -hmm. I had not 
really had any expectations for it to be a long-term thing. And I'm still running it. I'm still enjoying doing it, but I also don't optimize it. Like there's all these things you can do on Patreon with rewards and swag and all, there's so many tools you can use if you really want to go down the path of making Patreon an income generator for you. You can do it, but I don't have either the appetite or the the bandwidth to do that personally. However, that said, I 100% agree with you that it's important to have a diversified income stream as an author um, because publishing is so unpredictable. If all of your eggs are in one basket, um, that basket could tip over and go pear-shaped at any given time. I remember in my debut year, I had some authors in my um, cohort whose publisher went bankrupt like three months before their book was supposed to come out. That's a nightmare. Oh my God, actual something else to add to my list of terrifying things that could happen. (laughs) Hey, we're all at Wednesday. We're all in the same boat. We're all at Wednesday, (laughs) so I'll be screwed. (laughs) So there's a, uh, there's a lot to be said for for not spreading yourself too thin, but also making sure that you have, you know, more than one thing in the oven. And for me, that is writing YA and is writing adult. So I have two publishers um, at any given time. It's also teaching. So I make some of my income from teaching workshops and writing classes every year. Patreon adds a little bit to that and, and speaking engagements and things like that too. So they're Um, There are ways for you to diversify. And for some people, that's self-publishing. For some people, it's Patreon. For some people, it's writing in multiple genres or in different media. So some people are writing novels, but also comic books. Um, So, you know, think about that because like at the end of the day, what is your skill set? And then how do you kind of like tease apart your skill set and figure out what are like the ways that you can optimize so that you're still having fun, but you have kind of a, ver- a variety of ways that income is coming in. How did you get into doing writing workshops? That's also a lot of work. Like when did you think that you were ready to take that step without imposter syndrome kind of coming upon you? That's a great question. So writing workshops, I started getting into them because that's how I got my start in publishing. So I um, got my debut deal really because of a conference here in the Pacific Northwest called Willamette Writers. Um, It's a conference that is got a whole bunch of writing sessions, but also has pitch sessions to agents. So I took Zero Boxer there in 2013, and I pitched to a bunch of agents, and that's where I got my first offers of representation. And so what happened was after Zero Boxer came out, I was sort of a Willamette Writers success story, so to speak. Um, And so I went back to uh, to the conference, and this time I went back as an instructor, and I, I taught a class there, and I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. Um, I'm fortunate in that I, I mentioned I have a background in business, and so I was very used to doing public presentations and speaking in front of people. So it felt enjoyable and easy to me. Um, that may not be the case for everyone. Not everyone loves, uh, you know, having to prep class materials and talk in front of uh, a room full of people. Um, But for me, it was fun. I realized that, hey, I can, I have no desire to be a full-time teacher. I can't imagine being like an an MFA professor, but I also uh, had the experience of going through Viable Paradise, which is a week-long residential science fiction and fantasy workshop. And I got a lot out of 
that. That helped me in the beginning of my career as well. So I just had this experience of having a good personal growth and track record through workshops. And that, that made me want to both give back and sort of use it as a way to continue to grow my own craft, but also be paid for teaching. And it breaks up my annual schedule nicely as well. I think that's really cool that you kind of started off through writing workshops and it came full circle. I love that. I think that's any author's dream. Have you ever like battled the imposter syndrome when it came to doing workshops or even your writing and meeting deadlines? You know, I... I think that like imposter syndrome is something probably a lot of writers feel on some level, but I've never let it really hold me back or, or get in my head. And I think that's because I was a management consultant um, for several years. And that's a job where you know nothing about an industry. And then you suddenly get thrown into an industry. And it's like, learn this entire industry and have something intelligent to say within 48 hours. Um, so I was kind of used to dealing with imposter syndrome from my previous job. And so I, in a way, I it was just kind of like, oh, okay, this is another sort of situation like that. But the way I got around that when it came to like teaching workshops and being an authority, so to speak, was just talk about stuff that you're confident about. Like I, you know, I, I think my very first workshop that I taught was about writing action and fight scenes. And I'm like, I've got lots of years of martial arts experience. I've written a book that's published that has a whole lot of fight scenes. I can talk about this one thing. Like I, if you gave me a prompt, what could I talk about without a lot of preparation for an hour? So pick that thing, that thing that if, if someone sat down with you over coffee and you could talk without any preparation, you have enough expertise to be able to talk about it in front of people and be paid. I love that. I also read your article on, on fight scenes. It was awesome. I wanted to kind of jump off of Sarah's point with the imposter syndrome because a lot of the workshops I've seen, a lot of them are run by white authors. Um, and there doesn't seem to be like a ton of BIPOC authors doing a lot of workshops or faculty at MFAs or, I mean, I think Viable Paradise has some awesome, like very diverse creators, but like there's not a ton like that. And even Sarah and I, we joked about doing a workshop or about like, you know, doing our own course because a lot of writers and workshops are white authors. And I mean, even just outside of the, the YA sphere, did you find that that was a challenge? Like, does did that come into play at all? I think I came in at a perfect time, honestly, because the landscape has changed so much. Yeah, you're right. When I went through Viable Paradise, that was it was still sort of early stages of like this recognition that um, workshops need to diversify and have more like different voices in the instructor cohort. I've seen that accelerate just leaps and bounds in like the last six to 10 years. Um, so this past summer, I taught at Aspen Words, which is got a new speculative fiction track. And I was the inaugural instructor there. And they have a very explicit uh, mission to make sure that there's a, a diverse instructor pool and that there there's scholarship opportunities and there's um, a real goal towards bringing in a diverse cohort of authors as well. There's Clarion West. I taught there this past summer they're absolutely, you know, on the ball there as well, you know, viable paradise. So I, I think especially in the science fiction and fantasy space, because that's the area I'm closest to and can speak to most, uh, most knowledgeably, that the landscape has changed so much, so much. Um, so it's actually, it's a great time, I think, for just diverse yeah. authors to be teaching. Um, and for, you know, just 
more vibrant student cohorts. Can you ask about how you deal with being an Asian writer and how sometimes people try to box in your writing or do they box in your writing? I feel like your writing is really cool because it's so, it feels similar to this world, but not at the same time, not at all. So I wanted to ask about how you kind of deal with that dichotomy. You know, this is a question that I think every writer has to kind of answer for themselves in terms of uh, how much do you lean into your identity in your writing and in your public persona? There's a double-edged sword there, right? Because on one hand, I want to write stories that are inspired by my heritage and by the East Asian media that I consume. And obviously, I, I wrote an entire fantasy trilogy uh, that was inspired by East Asian culture and by media and and by wanting to see characters that looked like me in, in a fantasy novel. Um, but at the same time, I do worry, and I think other authors do as well, about being pigeonholed, right? So you, you're walking this fine line all the time where, I mean, I, I honestly, that, that occurred to me when I was when I was querying and when I was on on submission, my very first novel that I queried that was never published, it's in a trunk and it'll never see the light of day, was a fantasy novel about an Asian American girl that goes through a portal, and it's it's a you know Asian inspired fantasy, um, and didn't go anywhere. And then my second novel had nothing to do with that. It was you know a science fiction novel that had. Was, there was no sort of Asian sort of themes or elements to it at all. Um, and that was my debut. And in a way, I'm kind of glad for it because I established that that's not all I am, right? Like I, I want to be an author that can draw on my heritage and my, my interests, but I also don't want that to be the only or even the main selling point of my writing. So in a way, having written these other three science fiction novels first, I feel like I was able to launch the Greenbone saga and feel like I can do it all. You know, like yeah. that's kind of what I want people to think. I, you know, I know authors who are like, you know what, I don't have any desire to write about anything other than Asian inspired fantasy or, you know, what have you. But that's not everyone. You know, there's there's people who don't want to be boxed in. So it's hard. I, I think that in the end, you have to write what you want to write. What you want to read. It. Yeah, what you want to read and what, what you want to put out into the world. The difficult thing is that the market wants you for the most part, to stick to one thing. Because if you are successful with something, odds are they'll want more of that. Then you're in a little bit of a, in this constant sort of juggling act with yourself of like, how do I kind of bring all of myself to my craft, but also kind of keep giving readers what they want from me. I don't want that to necessarily be, oh, I'm only going to write Asian fantasy. Like I'm clearly not. What I'm writing next doesn't have anything to do with that. So there's no clear answer. It's definitely this constant difficult question that we just have to deal with. I guess my follow-up to that, because I find this super fascinating, is that I'll use an example because it's easier to explain. If I'm writing a fantasy and there's people with ethnically like Pakistani features or, you know, brown features, I think people will assume 
all the culture and the magic or fan- fantastical elements are automatically associated with that culture. Even if I like write a different, like mm-hmm. try to go super like made up. I think what I struggle with, and I think a lot of writers have this question too, is how do you write made up fantasy that doesn't have anything to do with your culture while also having diverse characters or having characters that look like you? Because, I mean, if you have, for example, people who have ethnically like um, East Asian features or South Asian features, people assume the culture is therefore in that uh, fantasy derived from the real life culture. You're right. And in a way, (laughs) there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. They're going to make their assumptions and it's hard to dissuade them of that. I'll give you an example. I've mentioned in multiple interviews, podcasts, blog posts, that KCON, the world in the Greenbone Saga, is not based on any one place in our world. It's not Hong Kong or Tokyo or Japan or, you know, or Taiwan or, you know, it, it's not any specific place. It was a mishmash of elements that I put together and then tried to build something new from the ground up. However, I have had so many of my foreign covers slap like a Chinese guardian dog statue on the front or, you know, something that's just very clearly Chinese. Shut up. The only reason for that is obviously because I'm Chinese American, right? Like that is the only reason, like, because that's the sort of the very shorthand to be like, hey, this is an Asian book is like, let's put, and I'm like, I often, I go through this so many times. I'm like, there are no dragons in this book. You know, this is not based on China. Like, why is there a Chinese guardian dog statue? I, you know, but that's th- just, that's just what happens. So unfortunately, you can't really stop those sorts of interpretations. All you can do is kind of be thoughtful in your own craft and then the words that you put on the page. And if you want to have a fantasy world that's very clearly based on Pakistan, you can do that. But if you want to just pick and choose elements to create something else that's different, that's not Pakistan, you should be free to do that too. I, com- I completely believe that this is something yes. that you know European descended authors just simply don't have to deal with. Like nobody mm-hmm. is like, well, is this Scotland or is it, you know, <laughs> Wales or like, I don't know, like people yeah. are, you're able to sort of take European elements and mission mash them all over the place, like have anachronistic things like potatoes, like nobody really gets really fussed about it. Um, yet for some reason, if, if you're working with a quote unquote more foreign uh, culture, then people seem to really want to know, you know, like they really want to peg it to a specific thing. Um, so you just have to, you, you kind of have to accept and deal with the fact that that's going to happen. Just write what you want to write. Well said. <laughs> so your world building is sublime. Sorry, and I have mentioned we're already big fans. Um, I know you teach a couple of workshops and um, pro- as a fantasy author, that's probably something that you get a lot of questions on in terms of world building because fantasy, that's what they say, is all about the world building. Sara is magnificent at world building. I am. I like to sprinkle in the details. I'm like less, so that's less of my strength. So I wanted to ask you, well, I've got you. What is your top world building tip or what are your top strategies? Oh gosh, I could like talk for three hours about world building. So <laughs> I, I will try to like distill something that's like pithy. Um, I mean, I my real approach to real world building is I just want it to feel 
as real and lived in as possible. My goal with the Greenbone Saga was for it to feel like a real place. I just wanted it to seem like that you could get on an airplane and you could go there and you could walk down the street and you could go to the restaurants and recognize them and go to different districts and be like, oh yeah, that's that district. So I find that the best way for me to make the world feel real is to have the characters move around and live in it and to really lean into kind of the specificity of the world. Like there's a sense, I think, when the world building is working that there's a lot more behind the surface and that that all the elements are thought out. I think where world building starts to show its gaps for me is when I have questions about kind of the, the really sort of basic day-to-day things. Like how do people pay for things? What are their religious traditions? Um, or like what sports do they play? What do they see on television? You, know, like you can have fantasy novels that feel like They've been really thought out in terms of like the geography and the magic, because like fantasy authors love to have like cool magic systems. Um, But the mundane things are what make the world feel real to me. And so all those little things like coming, I love doing things like coming up with the brand names for the luxury cars that like my characters drive or like the names of their favorite restaurant. Like those are the little things that I think make the world feel real. I love that. I never thought about it like that like making it feel lived in, I kind of just go through a checklist and I'm like, wait, that makes it sound more fun instead of like a laundry list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I like that, that it's like those, those little details that kind of people forget about, but they just make it come alive. I really like that. You're well, we mentioned that we are all at Wednesday because you do have some YA books coming out with Wednesday. And I think we all, um, are coming out in the same year as well in 2024, 2025. But it sounds like such a cool deal because you were contacted by Shannon Lee, the daughter of Bruce Lee, right? Who asked you if you'd be interested in collaborating with her to do young adult novels inspired by her father's life. Like, can you talk about how that came about? It happened very unexpectedly, really just out of the blue in that uh, Shannon had this desire to turn some of her father's writings and his his script treatments into a young adult fantasy story. And part of her motivation was that she really wanted to introduce her father to a younger generation. I mean, those of us who, like me, who grew up watching Bruce Lee movies, know who Bruce Lee is, obviously, like that he's such an icon. And he was incredibly personally influential to me as a martial artist and as an Asian American. But teenagers today, you know, haven't, didn't grow up with Bruce Lee movies. So she contacted uh, a number of authors, and I ended up having a conversation with her, which was very cool. Yeah, it just worked out. I ended up collaborating with her on a proposal that we shopped around and it landed at Wednesday, which is a great home for it. And now I have to finish writing the book. And oh, it's so been it was a, a proposal. Yeah. So uh, a similar situation. I know the pain well. <laughs> wow, both of you. Good luck. with the pain yeah. of being like, yeah, here's what I'm going to do. Now I have to actually do it. Darn it. But the collaborative process with Shannon has been great because she obviously knows her father's legacy better than anybody. And I'm coming at it as really as a fan. But 
I have a ton of creative leeway because it's not IP in this. It is IP and it isn't IP. It is an IP because it's not like Marvel or Star Wars. There's no characters in existence. There's just sort of a vibe of like Bruce Lee and his films, his ethos, you know, his life story. I can just kind of take that as a jumping off point and do whatever. We have had long calls where we just sit down and talk about things and bad ideas back and forth. And so stay tuned. We'll see how it goes. I am going to be nosy and ask about the fantasy elements. Like, was that her initial idea or was that something that you both... Oh, okay. Yeah, no, it was... And this was something I did not know, which is that Shannon is a fan of the fantasy genre and and loves like epic fantasy, which I I was like, made, you know, that was just super cool. (laughs) And so, yeah, no, there was, there was no hesitation um, on her part for it to have fantasy elements, but because of like the type of fantasy that I personally like to read and write, and also just sort of wanting it to be this very realistic, grounded action a story, which is really, I mean, that that is very Bruce Lee, that he was very much into, you know, all of the fights being like as realistic as possible. So the fantasy elements are are sort of very, they're, they're relatively subtle. Um, so it's not going to be like spell casting, but there is definitely, there's some, some cool, fun elements in there that I think people will like. Yeah, I did not grow up with Bruce Lee. Um, I obviously learned about him as I go through my martial arts journey. Um, I like to watch little videos on YouTube. So I'm super excited and congrats again on it. Thank you. Yeah, it sounds so cool. And I'm excited that we share an editor. We want to just ask you a couple of things before we wrap up. I know that you mentioned that you had two little kids and you, you know, were in the corporate world and you're a black belt martial artist. So like, obviously, you've got a lot going on. um, And a lot of writers I know, like, I mean, including myself, like don't even ever see a time where they could leave their career because of the volatile nature of publishing and not having that steady paycheck and supporting their family. How did you balance it all, especially when you were starting out? I don't even know. I feel like I still don't know. I'm (laughs) yeah. unsatisfying answer i still feel like i am just pedaling like a one-wheel rickshaw like all the time like i (laughs) i I don't feel in the air like i i don't know if i have like the answer yet i don't know if i'll ever really have the answer i think it's never gotten actually easier because Mm. even when you are supposedly established and you're no longer in a position where, you know, you don't know what your next contract's going to be. Now you have all these other obligations. I, I was looking at my calendar the other day and I was like, how am I going to get this draft done before I have to go on book tour to launch my next book in April? And then, you know, I have my daughter applying to college this year. So like, we're, you know, how do I find time to help her visit some campuses when I have to go and like teach you know, for multiple weeks, like over this summer. And so there's, there's constantly things that you're balancing. And then once you have books in the production pipeline, and you're having to juggle writing one book, revising one book, marketing one book, plus all the other sort of author tasks that you have, it gets to be a lot. Um, So when I would actually say, and this is not going to be very encouraging, but it's when before you're book comes out actually kind of like enjoy this time when like mm. no one is really knocking on your door 
that much. There's the anxiety of actually getting published, like I trying to finish the book, get it out, land an agent, land a book deal. Like that is all like, don't get me wrong. I remember how stressful it was to find the time and like bandwidth, mental capacity to do all of that. But also now I look back on it and I was like, that was actually not too bad. Like, <laughs> like because nobody is like breathing down your neck yet debt for deadlines and other obligations. So every once in a while, just sort of take a step back and be like, okay, timelines and publishing are all made up anyways. Like <laughs> the, yes. if, you, if you are a week or two late or even a month or two late on something, the publishing timeline is long enough. Don't worry about it too much. Um, but I will say like, just find a way to protect your writing time. That is the hardest thing, like across every single stage, like from the very beginning up until like your 10 books into your career. Protecting your writing time is absolutely the hardest because it is the hardest part of the job, it is the most time consuming part of the job. And it is also the easiest thing to put off because you don't have like the day-to-day yeah. structure. It's not like a day job where I have to get this spreadsheet filled in and turned in by like the end of tomorrow. It's turn in this book next year, which is very hard to structure your life around because it seems like such a huge goal. The only way to get it done is to break it into smaller and smaller pieces and then protect your time. And that's what I'm like, to, I, th- right now, that's what I'm trying to do is in 2023, I have a crap ton of writing to do. And so I'm like, okay, how do I make sure I set aside the hours that I need every day where I don't look at anything else? I don't answer emails before I hit this amount of work. That's the only piece of advice I can give. But I remember that time, like times when I would be like, okay, I have like 30 minutes in the car while my kids are at swim practice. I'm going to see if I can like bang out a few hundred more words. Like that's yes. what Emily does. That's, that's exactly that's what, what I do. Does. Yeah, I do like yep. 15 minute increments sometimes, like even just before the kids wake up. I like, admire you both. I really am inspired by that answer actually, because like protecting your writing time is the only thing you could do, right? Great answer. I will also say, I mean, I've tried so many hacks and you'll just keep looking for different hacks um, for your life. Like I got an alpha smart Neo that has no like wireless connectivity. I've like, you know, gone and worked in like every single coffee shop, library, like I've gone on, you know, writing retreats where I basically, you know, make sure I don't have any other obligations for four to five days. So every different project, every sort of different stage, you just have to figure out how you can hack your life so that you can do it. And in a way, I think that back when I wasn't writing full time, I was actually more efficient because those like 30 minutes in the car were, you know, I I had to get stuff done. Now that I'm a full time writer, sometimes I can be a little bit more slack about it because you know, I, I have a little bit more give in my schedule. And so sometimes it takes me actually longer to get into the writing groove because I'm like, I have to have my tea and then I have to sit down and do this. So sometimes the like hard constraint of having just the 30 minutes in the car can help you. Yeah. I always say to Sarah, like I'm a full-time lawyer. My practice is quite busy and I have two little kids. And so it almost seems like I'm better 
when it's busy because I can be like, okay, like I have this time. Like I don't have time yes. to like look at TikTok. I don't have time to like go on Instagram. Like I literally yeah. just have time to write. Like that's the only time I have. Yes. If I don't do it, I don't do it. Yeah. And I think it makes me better at just structuring it in because I just, I won't get it done. Otherwise it's hard. Yeah. No, there's, there's definitely a period where I'm like, no, I didn't watch any new television shows. Like there's just like a complete gap you know, in my media, like landscape where it was like, no, I was too busy. I didn't do anything except like write and work and, you know, take care of my family. That was all that could be managed. Which is fairly crucial though. Yeah. <laughs> um, because this is a podcast about revealing the, the little known truths or facts behind traditional publishing. We like to ask our guests, you know, did you learn any hard truths when you were starting out in your publishing journey? Is there anything you would tell past self? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's so many. <laughs> but I, but I, I do think if I had to pick one thing I wish I had known, it would have been just to understand that as an author, you know your book best. And everyone in the publishing ecosystem is your partner. But you have to be in the driver's seat because you're you're the creator. And it's very easy when you get caught up in publishing to feel like you've kind of like handed it, like your work is done almost in a way, like you've handed it over and like now there's all these things going on that you don't really control. Like the arcs going out and, you know, distribution and publicity and marketing and all this stuff. And you might at times feel like, like you don't want to bother people. Like, you don't want you don't want to ask for something you can't control that but remember that like publishing is in it to put a product out but they don't necessarily know who your reader is and they're good at putting books out but you still have to have some initiative to find your readers and it takes time to do that but maybe the most concrete way I can illustrate this is that like, if you have ideas for how to reach your readers, if you feel like maybe this cover is just not right for your book, if you have an event that, you know, your publisher hasn't suggested, but you, you're pretty sure like your readers will be there, like make sure that you are in conversation with your agent, your editor, your marketing, your publicity team, to really advocate for how your book should be positioned. I think all authors fall into this of sometimes feeling like you're in an adversarial relationship with the publishing machine because it can be really heartbreaking and soul crushing sometimes. And it can flatten out like this thing that this shiny thing that you've like put your, your heart and soul into and it turns it into a product. Right. Um, but the relationship doesn't have to be adversarial. Like if you are having issues, like don't just stew about them and be quiet and feel like there's nothing you can do. Like I've had situations where I've asked my agent, like well, we need to get on the phone with the publisher and talk this through because something isn't working. Or like, I really don't have insight into what the marketing and publicity plan is. Like, can we have a call and make sure we talk to them about it, even if they don't initiate it, right? So it's just really important to know that you can't, there's so many things you can't control, but stay involved, like stay engaged, like fight for your book where you can, and you know your book best. 
don't agree to things that don't feel right. Love that. Okay, we're going to start on our fast round. Just say what comes to mind first, okay? Okay. First question. If you had to pick one, adult or YA fantasy? Adult. Ooh. Nice choice. I, I like that. I agree. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. Next question. Tending to the love interest's wounds or enemies to lovers? Pick one. Tending to wounds. Yes. Nice. The biggest craft mistake that fantasy writers make. Wow. There's so many. Um, <laughs> taking the easy answer. Like not being deliberate mm-hmm. about your world building. I like that. That's spicy. I like that. Tragic ending or a happily ever after? Tragic every time. Yes. (laughs) We're vibing. Emily's like, what the heck? I'm like, all the romance listeners are like, what? (laughs) Um, Have you uh, read my books? (laughs) Uh, Your favorite fantasy romance trope. Oh, a slow burn friends to lovers. Oh, you like That's slow burn friends with. to lovers. Oh my God. Honda, this is the first time I'm disagreeing with your answer so far. Well, I'm still batting pretty well. Okay. Yeah, this is good. What's your favorite martial arts fight seen in Jade City? Like only the first book, just to avoid spoilers. Oh goodness. The ambush. It, about It's about a third of the way in. Somebody gets ambushed. Okay. Okay. Oh, I know it's your new Okay. Yo, that's, that's a good that's, one. That's so mean. That's so mean. If you had to pitch your writing in three words. Oh, goodness. Three. Pitch my writing in three words? Yes, ma'am. Um, chewy action drama. Oh, I okay. love that. Yeah. That's good. Top tip for writing a fight scene. Emotional stakes. Oh, that's good. What are you reading right now? Or what book would you recommend right now? Oh, right now, I'm reading Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. Oh, oh, I still have to it's read such that. a classic. I love it. Yeah. I love it so much. Um, awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much, Fonda. Thank you. You have been a delight and like so much insight. And I looked up and I was like, oh my God, Sarah, we're already past an hour. Like, how is that possible? Like, that doesn't happen all the time. Like, <laughs> so like to have like, it just go by in like a flash. It just shows that we've had such a great conversation. So thank you so much for giving your time to us. Well, you had great questions and I, I was happy to to ramble on about them at length. Thank you for listening to On The Right Track Podcast. Visit us online on Instagram at On The Right Track Podcast. Subscribe, leave a review, rate, and share with a friend wherever you listen. This show is hosted by Emily Varga and Sarah Mughal Rana. Our editor is Abby Cirquitella. If you'd like to support us, please visit the links in our show notes to find more about how.